it, it seems just obvious, but the piece you wrote or whomever wrote it for you guys was pointing out the fact that, I mean, this, this is the story. It's not like a little subplot. And the media just this whole time kept the framing that, nah, this is just differences in ideology, progressives first moderate. Can you kind of talk about, to me, A, why that's so damaging, but B, uh, I, I really wish if the media wasn't going to report on it, you know, progressives doing these nonstop rounds of interviews for Bill Ajayapal, Ro Khanna, uh, Bernie Sanders, they would have mentioned it. But unfortunately, it seemed they tried to play kind of the, the, the diplomatic game rather than just going kind of on offense in, in that manner. Talking about money in corporate media and in Washington is seen as, as taboo. It's something that's seen as impolite. Uh, you're breaking etiquette rules. Uh, and so what you end up having is a conversation about a, a bill where corporate lobbyists, armies of corporate lobbyists are trying to influence the bill, where those lobbyists have uh, specific power and influence with legislators based on how much their industries are funneling in terms of campaign cash to those legislators. And that determinative influence peddling uh, and corruption is written out of the story, which means that the story you're hearing about this bill is not really the story of what's actually going on. It's a fairy tale. It's it's not a real uh, representation of what's actually driving the bill. Uh, and that's because corporate media doesn't want to talk about it because its sponsors don't want to talk about it. Uh, politicians who are being bankrolled by these industries obviously don't want to talk about this. It's embarrassing for them. They don't want to look like they're so nakedly corrupt. Uh, and so the American public is being told a story about the legislative debate and negotiations over this bill without being given the information about what's actually driving the debate. I mean, here's the thing. Kirsten Cinema has gotten has been bankrolled with more than $1.2 million worth of ads from a pharmaceutical industry dark money group run in part by pharmaceutical lobbyists at the same time that she has been trying to water down or kill Democrats' drug pricing measure, the promised drug pricing measure. Uh, the idea that that money and that support for her is just suddenly coming to her aid uh, in with no connection to her behavior on Capitol Hill is preposterous. It is the story, but it's not, it's barely part of the story that we've heard uh, in the larger telling of what's going on in this bill. Same thing for Joe Manchin and the fossil fuel industry. And look, I, I want to be clear. I don't think that there are pharmaceutical industry or fossil fuel industry sponsors calling you know, the New York Times or calling CNN or calling ABC News and saying, you can't report on the money that we're giving to these politicians. I think it's much more subtle. And we, as we put it, it's not uh, explicit quid pro quo corruption. It's so pervasive, right. it's so immersive that it's actually at the level of culture. This is corporate media culture to not talk about the topics and the facts that everybody inside corporate media knows would potentially offend sponsors. And let's be very clear. Every time when you turn on your television, you're getting some sort of pharmaceutical or fossil fuel or fossil fuel related advertisement. 
these industries are spending billions and billions of dollars a year on advertising. And that has a dual effect. It has the first effect to sell their products, obviously, but it has a secondary effect to be constantly letting media outlets, corporate media outlets know who butters their bread. And the result of that is a corporate media conversation in which money is written out of the story. And, you know, to me, and, you know, obviously there's a whole cottage industry of just bashing Bernie and the squad and all that. And frankly, I think they played this wrong. I really do. Um, I don't ascribe negative uh, motives to them, but after actually holding the line, uh, uh, which I credited them for, uh, I mean, kind of predictably kind of just folded at the end. But one thing that I think, and I just, I'd love to know your insight because you've been on the other side. I mean, you've been in, you've worked on Capitol Hill. You were in Bernie's campaign. I tell the audience all the time, and this isn't to blow smoke up your ass, but people don't remember. Towards the end of Bernie's campaign in 2020, he started closing the gap among older voters uh, that that he that had been his kryptonite. And why? Because David Sirota and the campaign were going on an all-out assault on uh, Joe Biden over trying to privatize Social Security. Uh, the ads, uh, you uh, on social media, uh, but the campaign was directly going after Biden over Social Security. And I remember being stunned. Oh, wow. Biden's starting to lose a little support among older voters. Uh, that's because you were going on offense and pointing out the record. But for some reason, I mean, I, I, I this is not specifically only about AOC, but I saw her on a CBS Sunday morning uh, interview, and it was like she was twisting herself into a pretzel to not say anything direct about the money they were taking, about the corruption, to make it seem like, oh, yeah, we just kind of, you know, we're a big family and we come from different ideas. So to me, if the progressives are not going to go on the offense about open corruption, which I, I, I do think is a popular message. I think people are against corruption. Um, then how are you supposed to change the, how are you supposed to change the ultimate framing of these debates and actually activate the, not just the progressive base, but people in West Virginia, people in Arizona, if Ro Khanna, on CNN constantly, if Pramila Jayapal on CNN, it's like, I don't know, it seems like they kind of won't get away from this diplomacy strategy and inside baseball negotiation strategy, rather than just calling it what it is, that Joe Manchin is basically trying to block life or death climate policy because he's making millions of dollars to keep coal going, or Kirsten Cinema. I mean, I didn't hear any of them in interviews mentioning she's in Paris fundraising right now, <laughs> blocking this. I, I'd love to know your thoughts. You can't get in their head, but it seems to me to be an obvious strategy. You don't have to say they are corrupt. You could just point out the money they're taking, but none of them, it seems they've made a collective decision as a progressive caucus or squad to really not go there. Yeah, and I think it, it falls under the, uh, under the rubric of uh, not wanting to, this is a phrase you hear a lot in political circles, not wanting to impugn the motives of your opponents. And I, I think it's fundamentally wrong because I think obviously, uh, look, campaign contribution records are public records. They're public so that the public can understand who is buying and selling uh, legislators and votes. And so not talking about that may be polite 
it, it, it may be, uh, you know, preserve some form of, of comedy and, and etiquette uh, in Washington, but it, it strips out the reality of what's actually going on. And I don't think it's a, a personal attack to point out that Kirsten Cinema is getting a lot of money from the pharmaceutical industry while she's doing the pharmaceutical industry's bidding. It's not a personal attack on Joe Manchin hauling in large amounts of money from the fossil fuel industry while doing the bidding of the fossil fuel industry. It is not, uh, it's not a personal or really negative attack. It's not an attack, frankly, to, to point out those facts. They are not attacks, they are facts. And, and if somebody perceives them to be an attack or negative, what they're saying is these are facts that should actually make us think differently about these politicians. And I, I would add that, look, I think there's everybody has a role to play. Uh, the the progressive caucus leaders in Congress they have to negotiate uh, with other members of Congress. So I guess there's an argument. I'm not saying I agree with it, but there's an argument out there that you know they have to uh, keep it nice, let's say, and 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 not really go for the jugular. And if you buy that argument, then the question becomes: Well, where's the cavalry? Uh, where are the liberal groups? Uh, in Washington, where are the unions? Where are the environmental groups? Where are all? I mean, there's a huge industry of liberal advocacy groups, uh, well-funded liberal advocacy groups in Washington uh, that could be playing an outside role. For instance, uh, funding ads uh, against Kirsten Cinema, uh, pointing out how much money she's taken from pharma, or pointing out in West Virginia uh, how. Joe Manchin's uh, effort to to uh, to potentially uh, uh, means test or or put work requirements on benefits to people how that would hurt people that really hasn't happened uh, it really hasn't and so I think we need to understand that the corruption and the complicity uh, in Washington is not just necessarily um, at times among uh, folks uh, legislators on Capitol Hill but it is a larger culture an omerta. Uh, omerta meaning a, a, a code of silence about what can and cannot be talked about. And right. again, going back to just blatant, obvious, in-your-face corruption, uh, it is largely not talked about because of that omerta. Uh, the, an omerta that's uh, in the Democratic Party, its coalition, its liberal advocacy groups, and in the corporate media. It is the thing that cannot be talked about, even though it is driving what politics is. I mean, I've said it before, I'll say it again. 99% of politics is basically the buying and selling of policy to benefit this or that private industry. And yet only about 1% of the discourse, the conversation, uh, the media coverage, is actually about that 99%. China's outspending us on research and development. China's outspending all these, these other countries are as well. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create good paying union jobs, union, not good job, not $12 an hour, not $15 an hour, 45 bucks an hour and up with good benefits. So you can raise a family on and build the middle class out. And jobs that cannot be outsourced, you can't outsource these jobs. I'm going to transform our transportation system with the most significant investment in passenger rail in the past 50 years. In roads and bridges, the most significant investment in 70 years. And investments in public transit, 
that we've done over the period. You know, this is gonna be gonna modernize our ports. So I wanted to play that because you know, a lot of the focus has been just on this nonstop horse race between the two bills being linked together and, you know, who's going to blink first. There wasn't a lot of attention on the actual infrastructure deal that just passed because there's a whole group of Washington group think that, hey, just get something done and we'll just sell it as transformational. Now, there's some good things in it, but I mean, even as recently as two, three years ago, uh, studies said, for the for the real rot of our infrastructure system, we need like at minimum, you're talking trillions of dollars right. uh, for infrastructure. This is only five hundred billion dollars in new money. I mean, it, the, the the top line is one point two, but a lot of that is already money that's been um, uh, put out there. And I mean, a lot of this, and this is not a sexy word or phrase, a lot of this is asset recycling, which to just dumb it down for people means. Uh, to to pay for it, uh, the whole Washington pay for it thing, they're going to sell public water systems, sewer systems, infrastructure to private corporations and take the revenue to build new infrastructure. So I, I wanted your thoughts because it's being sold as transformational and this is going to be great and all these union jobs, this and that. But to me, uh, I I think if you look under the, underneath the hood, uh, this might be... Uh, just putting our privatization push on steroids. Well, look, it, 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 at one level, it's it's similar to the uh, Obama stimulus plan and that it's, it, you're, you're right. It's some of the things in there are not objectionable. They're actually good. It's just not enough. Uh, and, and, and selling something that is not enough as transformational runs the political risk of you selling something as the greatest thing ever. And then voters saying, uh, I, you know, this might be fine, but you haven't really transformed society in the way your rhetoric suggests uh, that you have. Now, I certainly think the asset recycling and privatization uh, potential uh, for uh, this bill uh, is a real concern. I mean, we live in a world now where the uh, presumption is that government can't do anything on its own. Uh, it can't build anything on its own. It can't produce anything on its own. It always has to simply try to uh, uh, subsidize uh, private corporations, sort of bribe them into doing uh, what needs to be done in the public sphere. I think it's a failed model. Uh, I think it's that, I mean, that is what I've just described is basically the neoliberal idea. I mean, the classic neoliberal idea. Uh, the government can't really do things directly. The best it can do is essentially uh, bribe private actors with lots of money to do things uh, inefficiently, uh, to do things in a way that, that uh, where the, the private interests get a cut of the profits, uh, things that the government can do a lot more efficiently uh, if it was serious about governing. So I think that's a very real uh, concern. We've seen it, uh, asset recycling, privatization, uh, very intensely uh, at, at, the, uh, at the state level. Uh, in various states. So I, I you know, but I, I should also add, uh, getting into the nitty gritty, there was a, a, a certainly a big push to have more privatization, more explicit privatization in the infrastructure bill. And as far as I can tell, uh, some of that uh, was rejected. I mean, it was it was batted around and debated and it was it was ultimately the the stuff that Wall Street really wanted uh, was kept out of the bill. But I agree with you. Uh, there are still there's still language in there that tries to infuse privatization into uh, the infrastructure policy of this country. And uh, speaking of Biden, I wanted to ask you also, because 
I'm sure uh, on Bernie's campaign the second time, you were just flooded with the propaganda. No, no, Biden's the guy who could get things done. Right. He's the pragmatic choice. He'll be able to get some Republicans along, which, you know, in fairness, he did get some Republicans along for this infrastructure deal. But he's the one who's going to really be able to actually make things happen in Washington, blah, blah, blah. But I don't know, unless I'm blind, uh, he's basically been in fetal position uh, against these two political terrorists, my words, not yours, Cinema and Manchin. And instead of using the bully pulpit of the presidency, instead of actually trying to pressure them, uh, he's just said he, he's basically operated on their terms this whole time. And what's gotten done or what will ultimately get done, which if we're lucky, you know, maybe it's one point seven five trillion, but it's going to be a big, uh, a giant cabal of means testing and accounting gimmicks. Uh, I don't even know if that's going to be enough to really be significant change for people that they would keep Biden in office or keep the Democrats in power. So I just wanted to ask you as somebody who was on the receiving end of like, no, nah, no, nah, Bernie won't be able to get anything done. He's a radical socialist. Uh, it just seems like, all right, well, you got the guy who's the pragmatic quote unquote centrist and the things getting done are basically stripping things down to a bone and, and selling it as life changing. Yeah, look, I, I agree with that. And I, I would say this, I would say that Joe Biden, uh, there's something fundamentally in tension with Joe Biden that that both in his campaign and the way he's governed. Uh, he made two sets of campaign promises. He made all sorts of promises that he was going to transform the economy, uh, significantly help people, materially improve people's lives, uh, change the economy in a positive way. He also made a promise to his biggest donors that nothing would fundamentally change. That's a direct quote. So obviously, those two things are in tension. And I think what we've seen is that Biden is, uh, is making a decision to honor the campaign promise that nothing would fundamentally change uh, for the wealthy and the well-connected in this country, uh, that nothing is going to fundamentally change about the structure of the economy. That's not to say that there's nothing good in the uh, package of bills that he's pushing. Uh, it is to say that the fundamental structure of how the economy works, how it distributes uh, the economy's resources, there's no indication that that is going to fundamentally change. I mean, the, the tax policies, as an example, that were promised have been so significantly pared back. The tax policies that are wildly popular uh, to make the wealthy pay more uh, of their fair share. I mean, they have, you know, hearing all these reports, well-researched, uh, well-documented reports of uh, the richest and the powerful uh, in this country paying zero in taxes and the like. Uh, to, to change the tax code is to structurally change uh, that part of the economy. And it doesn't look like that's going to happen, at least not yet. And, and it doesn't seem like Joe Biden is really willing to fight for that. What it seems like is that Joe Biden is first and foremost honoring that other pledge to his wealthy donors that nothing would fundamentally change. Right. Uh, I wanted to ask you, when you look at the current hubbubaloo about inflation, and speaking of the promise that nothing will fundamentally change, Colin, if you could play that short cringeworthy clip from MSNBC today with uh, that brave progressive Stephanie Rule. 
<laughs> we don't have enough people to fill our current jobs. And this argument, there are going to be jobs at higher wages. Higher wages are one of the contributing factors to inflation. Uh, so for those that don't know, that's Stephanie Rule. She's an MSNBC anchor. I think she used to work at Goldman Sachs or some financial. Yeah, yeah Deutsche Bank. Yeah. Deutsche Bank, thanks. Yeah. So first of all, you know, it seems like outside of this electoral uh, mess we have, we got some actual movement among workers. I don't want to overplay it. It's not the strike wave of the 1940s, but compared to organized labor of the last 20 years, we got some movement as far as the strikes that are going on. Now you have Kaiser Permanente, uh, one of the biggest healthcare companies in the country. John Deere is still on strike. Uh, Starbucks, which I just covered in Buffalo, their union drive. And you have um, a lot of these workers quitting it seems like Stephanie Rule and Larry Summers and the usual gang are basically saying, well, yeah, you're going to get inflation if we actually pay workers a living wage. That's their argument. That, that, that's right. Now, of course, the way if you were serious about wanting to combat uh, inflation uh, and you're uh, worried about higher wages for workers, one way you can uh, take money uh, out of circulation uh, is to actually pass policies to raise taxes on people like Stephanie Rule, uh, very wealthy people. Uh, you can, uh, that's one way to combat inflation. I mean, she's don't a, be a- Don't be a rotten communist. Uh, <laughs> right, I mean, I mean, it's amazing. Look, that clip is amazing to me in that, in that you have a television round table of very wealthy people uh, uh, bewailing the idea that the service workers who serve them uh, should make a buck more an hour or two bucks more an hour. I mean, it is, we are leave, living in an era that is absolutely and positively beyond parody at this point. Uh, and it's really pretty pathetic uh, how uh, how divorced from economic reality uh, the uh, elite media discourse is from what's actually happening in the economy. So now the current mayor, he basically, who is a big supporter of this completely scam pipeline. He's the treasurer. He, he's the treasurer of the pipeline the and also the mayor. He came in and one of the first things he did was try and get Flint slowly but surely to move away from receiving its water from the city of Detroit, which before it went on the Flint River, it was getting its water without problem from Detroit. Then it cuts its contract with Detroit, goes on the Flint River, which is basically like General Motors and every other corporate polluters waste being dumped in there for 100 years. And then uh, after Snyder finally had to admit that the water was poison, they moved back to Detroit. This guy's trying to essentially, because the county that Flint is in, Genesee County, is basically going bankrupt itself. So they yeah. want, is it correct that they want to move Flint over to KWA fully so that they can make more money since Flint would obviously be paying the county for its money, you for got its pipeline? It. Absolutely. And what's funny is that um, per the EPA emergency order and my lawsuit through the Safe Drinking Water Act and the NRDC and ACLU of Michigan, the city of Flint and state of Michigan, they're not allowed to make any permanent water changes um, without permission, without proper testing, which they didn't do. And they're not allowed to do this. But you know what? Who's enforcing it? It's the state. They're going to slap their own wrists. No. Mm. So they just went ahead and moved ahead forward with it without any safety information, no testing, no baseline testing, no anything. And the only reason any testing was done is I threw a huge fit the minute I heard about this and started going up line and getting my attorneys involved. And then they're like, OK, fine, we'll do some testing. They didn't even do proper sequential testing for the metals. They just showed up at people's houses. They didn't check to see what their service line was. They didn't do bacterial testing. And they're like, here, we'll do some testing after the water's been running all day. It's going to look low. 
of course. And um, they're gonna, they tested the one time. They said they'd like to come back, but um, there's no plans for that. I'm like, what are you talking about? And also, we don't know who's in control of the valve to allow this blend to happen. Uh, that also means that if we have a problem with our water, we have no idea who we're supposed to go to. Because right. that's two different water systems that have this valve that we don't even know who's in charge, who's maintaining it. Are we even sure it's accurate? And uh, they're not letting people know that the, you know, they're start, they started at a 95, 5% blend and we're supposed to go up every two weeks, another 20% if the testing was good. And yet there's been delays on that because that means the testing was bad. And so they're trying to say that this is important to do this valve work. Valve work for what and where? They won't tell us. Who's doing the work? Who's paying for the work? No answers. So I've had other people working with me to help me FOIA this stuff because they don't like my name and don't like sending me the stuff that you know I'm requesting as a resident. And so, yeah, nothing, no, no technical information is. And then, so what they did was they said, oh no, it's been testing fine. So they did this huge dump of data on the state's website. And what they did was they put the individual tests for Flint, uh, the individual test for the KWA, the pipeline, and the individual tests for GLEA, Detroit, the Detroit system. None of them blended. All individuals saying, oh, it's all fine. Look, look at this. I'm like, yeah, where is it blended? Where is it? And who's controlling the orthophosphate levels? Who's controlling the corrosion control levels now? Oh, they're not. And the water is hurting my skin. It stinks again. And it's just like 2014 and 15 all over again. So they're, like, not, they're, they're not actually, they're only testing the water individually. They're not yeah, actually the testing result, the so. water. When you say blended, they're blending, what is it, like uh, 90%? What's the oh, actual no, percentage? We don't know now. We, okay. we don't know. It started off 95% GLEWA, 5% um, KWA, and then it went up to 75, 25. And uh, there's no, no notices about the next 25% because they're, they're moving us to 100% KWA while this important valve work, which... No and they're saying they're out. saying that the reason they're blending the KWA water, again, for the audience the totally unnecessary pipeline that caused the building of which caused Flint to go on the Flint river in the first place. They're saying that the only reason they're even blending the, blending the water with uh, KWA and Detroit water is while they temp, while they work on fixing Detroit's uh, pipeline and valves and, so and stuff say. like that. Cause but I he heard was sitting here going, we don't know what you're talking about. So Detroit, oh, really? is saying, we don't know what you're talking about. What valves are this? And then they said, well, actually, what we're going to do is we're going to stay at 95% GLEWA to honor that contract, 5% KWA, because KWA is now the backup, because we need a backup, even though other cities in Michigan that are our size don't have a backup. We need a, you know, Flint needs a backup and we don't want the water sitting in that pipe stagnant. So instead of it being a backup, it's being a, they're now calling it a secondary water source because we get to pay 24 seven for this 5% or so they say, cause again, we know nothing about the valve, who's controlling it, how it's actually working to ensure a 95, 5% blend. I think that's yeah. important though. So the reason they're giving that they have to blend the water between this KWA pipeline and Detroit water is because they're saying that there's construction going on on Detroit's water pipeline that Flint had been getting its water from. But the, De the Detroit water pipeline, which is under the Great Lakes Water Authority, they're saying, uh, what are you talking about? What construction? Yep. And so the answer given to my attorneys was, well, the, the, the pipe that connects Flint to, you know, the KWA, it's five miles long. And so if water just sat there getting stagnant in that five mile section, we wouldn't want to send that to, to Flint residents, which um, they've been sending a stagnant water for 
since they started downsizing our city and running people out. But we don't want to send the stagnant water through. We wouldn't want that. So we're going to have the water, the backup running at five, at a 5% rate 24-7, which is unheard of. Nobody else, the only people that have secondary water sources are much smaller towns to where their primary source doesn't have enough water to service everybody. This is absurd. It's basically forcing us to pay for the KWA that we didn't want, didn't agree to. And, you know, yeah, that's it. Because nobody else, by the way, has this happening. Nobody else on Detroit, nobody else in Michigan but, is but having also, the same situation. But that's but the all, BS that they gave us. But also, this would leave Flint to have to pay the Great Lakes Water Authority, which is Detroit, and the KWA. And, and who's like paying that. for that? We are. Right. And, you know, the estimate, I guess, it, her overheard um, at a city council meeting is that 60% of our bill even though it's supposed to be 95% Detroit and 5% KWA, 60% of our bill is going to KWA. So real nice. People might not know. I mean, Snyder and all these other defendants, as we speak, are in court trying to get the charges dismissed based on what, what it appears to be the current Flint prosecution, which the attorney general, Dana Nessel, says she's not in charge of, but it's under her watch. It's her attorney him. general's office. Uh, that they, I don't know, uh, released information that shouldn't have been released, that they, that they um, reused- Filed in the wrong courts. Filed in the wrong courts, that they used attorney-client privilege documents that should have been confidential. <laughs> so they fired the first investigation that was chart that was building towards involuntary manslaughter. And from what it appears, Melissa, have set up, possibly Snyder getting off on a technicality. Yeah, getting off from a $1,000 fine, a one penny, one cent per person he poisoned, you know, with his policies and signing off on all of these really wretched, you know, fraudulent deals. Again, you know, we, I have to correct, you know, the media and anybody else who says, oh no, Flint switched to the Flint River because they were broke and they had, they couldn't afford. If we were so broke, how do we pay the hundreds of millions of dollars for this stupid pipeline that we didn't ask for and didn't want? If we were so broke, why would you have us on there in the first place? Oh yeah, because we're not. You, like the state drained us through emergency management and through stopping revenue sharing and all the things they could do to bankrupt us so we would be in the hands of the state. But the water crisis busted out and stopped that bankruptcy process because that's what happened in Detroit. So, you know, we would be next in line, you know, the next biggest city. And then also getting us on these regionalized pipelines, uh, no longer, you know, under a municipality, a little bit weaker rules. You don't really have the people to call back on because now you're answering to a corporation. Yeah, well, we didn't want that. We fought against it. And then, of course, they got that mayor out who stood with us on that and said, no, the people don't want that. And it's not safe, you know. And now we're on it. And the people that forced us on it are getting away scot-free. Um, yeah, uh, Rick Snyder, to his hearings, his suits are more than the fine he's proposed to get. And, you know, so we're just sitting here like, are you serious? And the fact that she got rid, you know, Dana Nessel got rid of, the attorney general got rid of the amazing investigators and, you know, uh, prosecutors that were doing the work and moving forward and put a lady as... Um, who uh, has never gone to trial for a criminal case. I asked this question and got screamed at in public. But yeah, and another one who had already been in trouble for planting evidence, putting innocent people behind bars. But then if you look at the staff list, she's not even listed as a staff member. Now she says, you know, from, you know, she's like, oh no, I'm just consulting. 
who's actually running the show because it's garbage. And the fact that you're getting, I'm not even an attorney, but I've sat in enough hearings and I have enough attorneys to know, like I could do a better job at this point. I wouldn't file in the wrong court, like to begin with. And then also I wouldn't use privileged documents. I mean, it, this is common sense stuff and it's so embarrassing. And then we're just watching like the whole thing. That's why part of us are slightly happy about the settlement in because the state could have weaseled out of that too. They could have gotten out of that like they are. And then people would have gotten away completely scot-free because nobody's sitting behind bars for poisoning 100,000 people and letting countless people die. And the fact that the the previous um, special prosecutor had dug up the, um, the, the deaths of, I don't know, a few hundred people, because they like to say 12 people died from Legionnaires, or 14 people died from Legionnaires, but actually looking at the death certificates during that same time period, um, I think it was a 340% increase in bacterial pneumonia deaths. Let's get to the settlement. Six, Colin, if you have the article, $626 million uh, settlement. Um, you know, if you get into the particulars, the bulk of the money is going to children that have been poisoned and forever brain damaged and obviously all sorts of problems with learning behavior. Um, you know, more money will go the lower age you get. Um, you know, there is some money for adults, but the bulk of it goes to children. Um, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There's a, there's a hefty portion of Flint residents that aren't happy with it. Uh, some activists that have been loud aren't happy with it. The last mayor, Karen Weaver, not happy with it. Uh, they've been protesting against it, saying it's not enough. Uh, the lawyers are getting a pretty hefty chunk of it, to be honest. But I wanted you on because I think it's important to look underneath the hood um, to understand what this $626 million is going to, to make clear, not that I'm, I'm not like a, a booster for it, that this is just one party Part. that yeah. is paying this is the government paying there's a whole lot of private corporations left to pay so can you tell let's start with the actual dollar amount do you think that's enough and what is the bulk of it going towards well of course it's not so it's, it's definitely not enough because what price tag would you put on you know your kid's potential, your kids' futures, their brains, our bones, our organs, people's lives and everything. So of course it's definitely not enough. Um, and by the so way, your, you, your kids have been damaged. You've been yes. damaged. Yeah. Yes. And I have no idea how much we're all going to get. We won't know until after, you know, we see how many people actually file claims because some people have been talked out of it thinking they're going to get more if they sue individually and good luck to them because so yeah, so our Michigan attorneys who have been amazing, who started working with them at the end of 2015, they were the first people that actually believed us because other attorneys we tried to talk to didn't believe us or they wanted this huge five-figure retainer for one attorney that there's no way we could afford, you know, I'm like, are you out of your mind? And so, you know, January of 2016, we filed this Mays v. Snyder in, in court and we, you know, we're suing the federal government, the EPA, the state government, um, and a city, as well as the uh, McLaren Hospital, where people had died from Legionnaires at the hospital. That got changed. But um, Rowe Engineering, which is a local little firm, they have to pay a million dollars. Um, the city of Flint uh, has to throw in the $20 million. And, um, and then also, you know, we're still, so what's still out there is the EPA, Veolia, and LAN engineering. So two private engineering firms plus the federal government. 
So hopefully, hopefully they decide to get smart and stop dragging us through court and settle. But we'll see what happens. So that Veolia is fighting tooth and nail like you wouldn't believe. Um, they had said that my file got stolen. They said they got hacked. Um, and magically my my file, my personal stuff, all my personal information got stolen. But I'm sure, you know, they're, they're sure I'll be okay. Uh, but they'll help me with, um, you know, my credit report if I need help with Alpha. Great. How did that happen? Anyway, so that aside, um, this one, it's a partial settlement. Um, there was zero budging under under Snyder, no movement whatsoever. We obviously, our attorneys had demanded far more than this. And um, then we got to this number. This number is of the 600 million from the state. This is what was estimated um, when we were asked, you know, when we were putting bills, trying to put bills through Congress, which got knocked down. We asked for $600 million for help with the pipe replacement and all this stuff. And so I think that's where they pulled that number from, you know, because that was what the estimate was. So then the state came back with it, um, the Whitmer's administration did. So it's been back and forth for years on trying to figure this out. Now, and where meantime, did Whitmer's administration come up with this number? Because Whitmer's I think it was from the congressional, the first um, uh, bill package that um, we that we were going for was $600 million, what the estimated um, amount was to try to fix Flint. And that was back in 2016. And since things didn't get fixed, it's way higher now because things are way worse. So that was the first pitch. So I think that's where they grabbed onto that money and they didn't in that amount and they didn't budge. So yeah. then it's been going back and forth. And then during this time, we had uh, vultures outside attorneys that aren't from here that swooped in, pulled all kind of nasty stuff. Um, the state of Michigan allows by law that the attorneys can be awarded up to a third of the total um, you know, cost in attorney's fees and court. Of course, they have to turn in the receipts because um, so for I know for our Michigan attorneys, it's been like 72 uh hearings delays denials dismissals the, the, all these things back and forth uh, appeals so they've put off their lives their their you know our michigan attorneys that were here since the start have put off so much to fight for this i mean and the last one we'd want we'd gone to was an appeal we had to go to the michigan um the state of michigan appeals court um for <laughs> the Supreme Court in Michigan, because they had said that Melissa Mays, that's me, had superior knowledge of the water and that I should have realized they were lying to us sooner and filed the lawsuit sooner. So basically, I didn't realize they were lying soon enough and I should have filed October of 2014. That's one so, hell of a blame the victim if I've ever heard. And I'm just sitting over there like, cool about the superior knowledge thing but also wow because in, in october 2014 six months after they switched our water they were lying to us out their teeth i'm like you can't use your crime of lying to us and covering it up as a way to defend yourself against these civil cases excuse me that's not how that works and thankfully the supreme court also felt the same way so um so it got to you know to move forward so like okay well we're gonna settle but it was like 72 of those it's been in front of the federal supreme court uh twice uh, RBG got to read my name. Yay, I guess, you know, before she passed and say, no, send it back. Let the people um, in Flint have their day in court. So because that's what's going to happen with these other defendants, if they don't settle, is they're going to uh, have to deal with us in court. And that's going to be great. Um, so all of it will be aired out, unlike the criminal cases, of course. But so, yeah, so this 600 million, it had to, <laughs> the state of Michigan had to borrow the money um, because at the time didn't have it, COVID, whatever, whatever the reason is, they had to borrow the money and then they had to send it through legislature. So suing a government is much diff more different, it's much more difficult than suing an independent 
private corporation. And we knew this, like we knew like it was a long shot to sue them anyways. Actually with our safe drinking water at case to get the pipes replaced, we didn't go in there expecting to win, at least not against the governments because of governmental immunity and all the mess, you know? So we made history when we won the safe drinking water at case. Uh, we made history again winning this case because I don't think that there's another case out there where regular residents sued a government and will get monetary compensation for the damages caused by said government. Um, and it's interesting that we would get anything if they were uh, innocent of uh, crimes. So you think that the two would go hand in hand, but that's obviously another picture. We'd probably get more money had people been sitting behind bars, but of course, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so this one, it goes 80% to children, um, uh, kids who are 18 and under when the water crisis began. And so that's what's going to go because the kids have to live the longest. And to get it through uh, legislature, you better make it, you know, sexy kids stuff, which is gross sounding. But apparently that's what people like donating for. And they like passing money, not for adults, because we don't matter. Our bodies don't matter. So the kids do. And fine, because some of the money is going, $9 million is going to special education for Flint schools. Um, $35 million is going to set for kids that um, whose parents are unable or unwilling to file a claim for them at this time. So they don't get left out when they turn 18, they can file a claim themselves. So those are good things. Those are good things. And those come right off the top. And so those are some good things that are happening. And then, um, yeah, so then there's $600 million from the state of Michigan. And then there's $20 million from the city of Flint. I uh, don't know where that magical insurance policy showed up from it was after weaver was in office after she was gone from office but that magically popped up out of nowhere i'm like wow that's interesting but uh, i have my theories on that and that's something totally different you know to push this kwa situation through um but um also then a million from row engineering and that was going to be 20 million from mclaren but we have these people some inside flint most outside of flint that tried to talk residents out of settling taking part in the settlement well, in any kind of settlement, if enough people don't sign on, then the defendants can scamper off. And so that's what happened with McLaren. They got to, you know, because not, not enough people in that class who had suffered the Legionnaires damages that were, you know, on record because at least their doctors knew to test for it because most doctors didn't know because the county and state and city withheld the information that there was a Legionnaires outbreak starting in 2014. So most doctors didn't know to test for it and wouldn't have thought to test and, for it. And let me just repeat. We broke a, in January. Governor Rick Snyder lied to Congress, perjury, told, uh, knew about the deadly Legionnaires outbreak as it was spreading through the water in October 2014, six months after the water switch, a couple weeks before he was up for re-election as governor. At the time, he was thinking of running for president in 2016, long before Trump even started Trumpism. And... He, him, his chief of staff, his health director, they were on the phone in October 2014 over two days, 22 times at the same exact time that Snyder's health department and Snyder's environmental department had panicked emails and phone calls going back and forth about Legionnaires. So he knew about it a year and a half earlier than he told the public when he could have notified the public and he could have saved lives of Flint residents could have prevented people from dying, from getting sick. He chose not to out of politics, and he has not. He was charged with a misdemeanor for withholding life or death information. And here's the thing. There's very specific 
um, treatments, antibiotics for Legionnaires. I think there's only three that actually work. So had people known that they had Legionnaires, they could have taken those specific antibiotics and could have recovered, you know, because lung damage, even the people that didn't die, that leaves lung damage, permanent lung damage, which makes you an easier target for say COVID. So oh, yeah. that's why for the longest time we had a over a 12% fatality rate here in Flint for COVID, yeah. uh, which was higher than anybody in the world. Go me, go Flint, hooray, with our compromised immune systems. So, so um, you know, so, that, so then basically not enough people in that class were filing claims. So McLaren got to drop down from 20 million to 5 million. So of course there leads the panic attack that yeah, we're only getting $600 million from the state of Michigan, but, and, and that, that didn't budge. They were like, take it or leave it. And that was it. And um, well, our choices were to take it. And hopefully enough people would want to file claims to where they would have to pay that promised amount or try our chances waiting in line for a, you know, actual jury hearing, which is going to take another five years minimum. But then all of a sudden COVID hit and courts stopped working, got backed up. And they, then, they, you know, when they reopened, they were um, prioritizing criminal cases over civil. So yeah, that would have left us with another how long, you know, and then also then at that time, the state declared that we had a $3 billion deficit. So guess who wasn't going to get money? So yeah, so we're like, well, crap, it's better than nothing, I guess. But then all of a sudden, all these people are like, well, we're not going to file claims. We'll just go at it on our own. But I don't think they realize what go at it on their own means, the amount of money. Because yeah, Aaron Brockovich's firm helped fund our Michigan attorneys because the cost of 72 plus appeals and hearings and back and forth, not to mention all the filings, all the evidence collection, all of the constant never ending back and forth with all of these defendants. So yeah, so here we are. We're like, crap, I guess we got to accept this 600 million because we're not going to get a penny more. We're not going to get, a, they're not going to budge. I, I mean, otherwise they would have. We tried, fought it for, again, since January of 2016, going on six years of just court and uh, for this case, for the civil case. And um, yeah, so we're like, okay, fine. But then all of a sudden, guess what? If not enough people are going to file claims and register to file claims, then they get to scamper off and we restart this whole process all over again. 